You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. This is John Spirosavet with a brief public service announcement. If you're listening right when we are releasing this episode, it's almost Pesach or Passover. And if you're looking for a way to celebrate with people and don't have plans, there are some easy ways to find a welcoming community. Search online for something like Jewish Jacksonville or Jewish Senegal or Arizona Passover, and chances are you're just a click or two away from someone friendly. You can find your way to an online Seder through myjewishlearning.com, our various co-hosts, or our synagogue Passover page where I am at tbanashua.org. There, you'll also find do-it-yourself resources or a recording to stream of me or other rabbis leading you through a Seder. For everyone marking a holy season of any faith, our wishes for a meaningful celebration. And now, on to our show. Hey, it's John Spirosavetta and Sari Laufer. Hey, Sari. Hi, John. How is spring in Los Angeles? Very rainy so far. We have had, mm. which is all Angelinos can talk about, we've had sort of unprecedented rain this winter. So <laughs> we are waiting for the, the May flowers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we in New Hampshire are sort of uh, whipsawing between a couple of weeks ago, our probably biggest snowstorm and a bit of a cold spell. Now it's sort of 50-ish and feels like uh, baseball spring training time as it's supposed to, but then it's going to yeah, chill, dust, and then and then we'll get back and go Red Sox, we hope. And no, you're making face. a face. Yankees or Mets? Or Me, actually, Dodgers. neither. I'm actually not a huge baseball. I was like, a, I'm what I would call myself a lazy Cubs fan, but my husband is a huge St. Louis Cardinals fan, so the Red Sox are sort of like a mortal enemy to him. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, well classic yeah. teams, at least. So. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> So let's hop into our episode. Give us, yeah, Sarah, give us, the, give us the name and the summary. Absolutely. This is Chapter 47, The Funeral to End All Funerals, written by Josh Siegel and Dylan Morgan, and I did not realize, directed by Kristen Bell. Uh, and here is our summary. As they wait for the judge's ruling on the experiment, Eleanor, Tahani, Jason, and Janet hold quote-unquote funerals for themselves and an unconscious cheating, sharing what they admire and have learned from each other. Each funeral takes place in a version of a setting that was significant to them in their lives on Earth. At the judges' chambers, the new final scores are revealed. While Simone, Chidi, and John all gained points over the course of the experiment, Brent's score dropped, but he gained significantly in the very last moment. Michael argues that the experiment and the humans' impact when they return to Earth show the humans' potential for self-improvement. The judge rules in his favor, but decides the solution is to erase all living and past humans and start over. Before she can press the reset button, Janet hides it, and an army of all the Janets arrives, having read Michael's manifesto. The judge begins to search every Janet's void for the button and marbleizes them one by one. Eleanor implores Michael to wake up Chidi, since he is the only one who can propose a better solution to the judge. This is a great episode and so a good. classic episode. Yeah. So good. I rewatched it. <laughs> Anything made you laugh particularly? It's just, it's always brilliant. I loved the juxtaposition of their current selves going back to these places that in some ways they feel so far from at this point. Yeah, it is so interesting that they go back to Earth for the settings of these things. Or at least some version of it, right? For Jason, it was your friends don't didn't say things about you so much. <laughs> they, as graffiti. They, 
Red Lobster, and then they're like, oh yeah, in Florida. Oh no, wait a minute, the... that's, wait a minute. No, that's the... oh, in Florida, yeah, that's, that's just... the first stage of grief. Stage I mean, grief. it's just so good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, yeah, that was wonderful. And <laughs> then, oh, when Janet is talking about Jason, I could see something special inside him that no one else could see. It was a multicolored blob of positivity right behind his sternum. <laughs> That's my Jason, a big, colorful rainbow blob stuffed inside a hot life-size action figure. Oh my God, that was that was good. I like that Eleanor's is in a a bar in a house she was not invited to. Yeah, perfect. That's <laughs> yeah. I was saying as we were hopping on that I'm just killing time while getting ready here. I was looking up the Gulfstream. G650, seeing yes. if that was like a particular plane. I don't really, but it turns out, do you know anything about the Gulfstream? All I know, I'm saying there's a hip hop song that like the whole chorus, I think it's G6, it might've been G5, but like a G6, baby, like a G6. So like it's, it's part of certainly wealth culture. Oh yeah. So there is, I see this article. And I believe spawned the hashtag of wheels up, right? For oh. people who fly private. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. So there is a student at the University of Central Florida who apparently has this thing where he tracks these flights. And so the G650 apparently is like Elon Musk and maybe it's Bezos and Bill Gates and stuff. And he has some way of sort of bringing this to light, <laughs> I guess. And also encouraging them to at least buy carbon offsets. Yes. They often, apparently he's discovered they often fly like a 20 minute flight. Mm -hmm. on the, so, so brave of Tahani to, I guess, reveal herself as a, as a G6. Oh, yeah. Person. So we'll post the link to this, this young man whose name <laughs> is Jack Sweeney, who has, according to the article in Forbes, never flown on a private jet himself. Yeah. And I have, have you, I have not. No, I, I have not. Yeah. <laughs> I love at Tahani's funeral how Jason says the only sad thing is she never got over his speech impediment. I know. And you see her, right? Like the cuts to them reacting are also great. And you see her wanting to be like, it's an accent. <laughs> 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 yeah, that is great. And so I have to say, so we are rabbis, we do funerals. So we're going to chuckle about the funerals portrayed in here. And hopefully nobody who knows us or will ever, you know, interact with us at or around a time of mourning will think that we're at all making light of what is the tremendously serious and, and also really special part of what we do. But we'll, we'll laugh about the episode. And I will say that I, I thought that this notion of doing the funeral in a special place to you was kind of a cool thing. I guess what people I've seen, certainly people at homes, put up pictures of special places where they and their loved ones are. And this is like the natural extension of that. That was, that was very. And I will sad. say, I know our tradition, you know, does not look kindly upon cremation, you know, but I think one of the things that is part of the appeal for some people is this idea that like a part of them can live in places that they love. You hear stories of that. Yeah. You know, so again, not necessarily our tradition, but there is something to that. And I was also tickled by those like reaction. Oh yeah. Things, just the smiles and the, I don't know why they were really, it was really well done. And, and I thought that the fact that they, you know, you could always do this kind of review as they have done from time to time where they'll kind of do a little retrospective on so-and-so or sum them up in some way. But these had, these had some lovely twists to them that were unexpected. I love like Janet was talking about Jason taught me I have value beyond what I do for other people. And, oh, and she said that what she appreciated about Eleanor was her hope when you wouldn't expect to have hope. Just thinking about that makes me want to barf up a beautiful quasar. <laughs> 
Yeah, these were these were lovely eulogies. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was actually just thinking of a funeral I officiated recently. And I'm, I was thinking, you know, as we were sort of laughing about some of the stuff, I actually was thinking about the role of laughter and I don't know if frivolity is the right word, but like even a sense of joy that you can bring. I just recently did a funeral for a woman who died, you know, younger than anyone would have wanted. But, mm-hmm. you know, what her kids said about her, what everyone said about her was like, she just was so joyful, full of life, wicked sense of humor, right? And so I always say like, part of our job is to kind of read the room. And so like I started, you know, I I put in a couple of like, I mean, I'm not a comedy writer and I wasn't trying to do a stand-up routine, but was able to bring enough levity and you can sort of, you can sometimes like see people in that space between laughing and crying, which is I often think sometimes where a lot of us live in those moments of grief where you're remembering like the joy and the laughter and also the, the deep sadness of not having that. And several people came up to me to say, like, thank you for bringing that laughter because that is who she was. And so, like, I was actually thinking, like, maybe sometimes it's okay to laugh and be a little funny and the cuts to the people like listening to their own thing and then sort of smiling or laughing. You know, there's something to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's still so it's interesting. I've been where I am in this congregation for 15 years. And still, it's it's often at times of mourning that I feel myself most new to people, even people I know well, because often I won't know their their family or their out of town right. people, and and sometimes local people have because you know they used to come and visit or something like that, and I always have that that feeling of like, am I am I enough in on the on those right. light things to be able to say that, or is it's my job, you know, at this particular funeral to just like set that up and enable other people to to do that and i know for me it's been freeing when i know the person and the family well enough to to be able to tell my own funny stories and and know for sure for sure but this was one of these cases where i didn't know the woman who had died and i actually didn't really know her family it was a sort of extended relative of of a congregant and again like i think there's just sort of a a reading of the room Mm -hmm. while they make cheaties you know faux funeral funny like you'd kind of imagine that his probably would be a little bit more serious and you can tell like there's some where you can tell like uh, this is not a funny moment that's not what this person brought into the world um you know i'm thinking a lot this episode i remember it made me think about this when it aired and now certainly that my dad of blessed memory always said that he he loved the idea of shiva because he loved the idea of a party to sell like really like he thought it should be a celebratory but he also always sort of said, like, I don't care what people get up and say at my funeral. I want them, like, I want to have known it in life. And I, I think yeah. about that a lot, not to bring this podcast down. My dad died very suddenly. And so on some level, there's like a, a blessing to that. And on the other hand, he didn't entirely get to have that, right? People didn't get to come and sort of say their stuff. And also, I think my dad, anyone who's listening to this who knew him, right, would say, like, he lived a life where I don't think he had any doubts of how people experienced him. Mm, So, mm. but like thinking about that of like, you know, I think when we talk about, you know, in our profession, sometimes when you talk about a good death or a healthy death, some of it is having the space and opportunities to, if not have a formal funeral, have people come and say the things to you Mm. and be able to say to you, this is what I learned from you. This is what you were to me. This is who you are to me. And I think that's a gift both to the people who are anticipating the loss and to the person who's dying. Yeah. It's interesting. I I we are recording this conversation after 
I'm recording the conversation that will be released next with Dan Ross about the next episode, which means if you're listening, you you will get to kind of hear where that where that theme kind of repeats. And you know, I was going to ask you, sort of apropos of that, if you believe in some way that the that the soul of the person who died can hear in some way the the eulogies that are given. Oh, it's such a good question. So, I, I, look, I and I will admit this is apparently this is going to be my therapy session about my dad, right? Like. He was very clear, like he did not believe in anything after death. And yet because of sort of who he was in the world and how he walked in the world, like, do I think his soul could hear them? No. But I think that like he knew every single thing that was said. There is nothing that was said about him. I mean, it was during COVID. So the funeral was like quite small and we had Zoom Shiva, but like no one said anything about him that would have that they didn't say to his face at some point. And that's, I think, you know, I think there's something to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it is true. The uh, I'm thinking about David Brooks's book. I forget which of the books in which he talks about the resume virtues and the eulogy yeah. virtues. Right, and, right. Yeah, and and making sure that we live our lives such that we we recognize in ourselves that those kinds of things that that will be said in that mode which is I mean, yeah yeah i would say like maybe it's a an occupational hazard but i do think of it i have moments of like what will my kids say what will my friends say do i think i like if i think i know what i want to be said about me if i have sort of settled in on like what do i think my val- deepest values or virtues are am i actually living in such a way that like those are going to be the things presented yeah yeah i was at a, a funeral the other day and it was small-ish. And I mean, the family said this is going to be small, but more people came. And the eulogy from one of the kids was just beautiful. And I've heard so many things. It also reminds me of just like people, especially from the heart, people can speak incredible things, even who don't think that they're speakers. And yeah, I have that thought regularly. Will people... Even when I think to myself, like, I know enough about myself that I don't need to hear these things from other people. But I mostly think, you know, do my kids know enough of the good things about me for that to yeah, make I mean, enough it's an impact like, that they know. I'm right. I'm less concerned like I need to hear it from people than did I give my kids, my friends, my husband, right? Like, did I give them the things I wanted to give them or and I, that and I wanted I really, them to have? Yeah. And I do think about like how in the in the scheme of, yeah, not wanting to hear these things myself, but uh, I don't know. I've come away from so many funerals being so inspired and kind of reminded about what's important and what is incredible about people and reminding myself in terms of my own teshuva to to pay attention to the right things and to push my time toward the things that get spoken about at funerals. Right. Because what I will say in response to David Brooks in, you know, is that I think one of the things that I always find really profound is when you hear sort of across the board about someone that they're his language, like the, their resume values and or virtues and their eulogy virtues actually match. Mm-hmm. I think there is something, you know, look, again, we are privy to lots of different dynamics out there in the world, right? And and one of the things that I find hard, sad, I mean, it's a reality, but that I do is when there's someone and and all the people who are mourning or grieving in really different, I mean, everyone grieves in a different way, everyone mourns in a different way, but like where one person had a wildly different experience of of someone than someone else, of like, huh, what happened there? You sometimes hear it like about a parent where one sibling is like, 
they were the most devoted. They were there for everything. And another sibling is like, they never showed up once. And is it like, did they have a moment that like brought it into relief? It's sort of interesting in to bring it back to the episode a little, right? That they all sort of have similar experience, right? Like there's no one who's saying something radically different about Jason or radically different about Sahani or Eleanor than anyone else. There is a consistency there. And I wonder if that was true of their funerals on earth. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking sort of in a complimentary way too, that they're, they're people who had somewhat different experiences of each other, at least if, if not totally different experiences of each other, they were very different people in relation to, to each other. Yeah, and each had, right. You know, in some cases, what Janet has to say about Jason is different from what, from what someone else has to say about her, but it's all, you know, testifies to the possibility that we have these many impacts, you know, on many different right. types of people. That's a sweet effect of what has happened in this whole good place operation is that they've learned to, you know, we went from this fiction of you have one soulmate to Team Cockroach or the the Soul <laughs> Squad. And, and, you know, initially we thought of Chidi as just the guy who taught philosophy to everybody, but his, the, the way he was there for each of them was, was distinct right. and they each were really able to bring something right. unique about that. A rootin' tootin' rackin' frackin' varmint. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Interesting that he yeah. was the one who didn't get that kind right. of uh, that eulogy. Although, as I say, that comes up sort of essentially right. um, in the next episode. They'll each say something. Really, they'll each give something to him. They'll offer something yeah. to him, which is cool. So, gosh, and then there's Janet. As I'm thinking about it, I guess I didn't pay attention that since Janet doesn't Right, Janet doesn't have a funeral. She doesn't right. die. Right, she's not human. It's that strange. Yeah, yeah. Janet very... and Michael, because Michael's yeah. otherwise engaged. Yes, he's otherwise engaged. And Janet's is sort of, in a sense, like a reverse eulogy, like what I would say to everybody. You know, almost right. like a a deathbed confessional uh, will right. without right. the <laughs> without the deathbed, right. which is which is cool also. Yeah. And I guess I do think about that kind of time. And we do have that tradition. People sometimes will write those things out mm-hmm. to people. And uh, we attempted when we were having our first kid to write out a message or kind of a, a pledge or a series of hopes to our children. And it's not that we didn't, we never went back to then rewrite it, you know, with any periodic. I think one of the things that I am interested in, I'm interested in the juxtaposition of like that this is all taking place sort of as the results are coming out. And I was saying to you earlier, there's a very famous story that some people know about Alfred Nobel, which is he had a brother and Alfred Nobel started his work. He he was the inventor, I believe, of dynamite or TNT. And when his brother died, some newspaper accidentally printed, I'm butchering the story. I tell it much more beautifully when I tell it homiletically, but the newspaper accidentally printed, you know, they, they've written mm. obituaries for famous people, right? They're already written. And so they had, they accidentally printed Alfred Nobel's obituary. And I believe it said like master of war dead at, and the story goes, who knows if it is apocryphal that Nobel was sort of so upset that that was seen as his legacy, right? That mm-hmm. he was like the creator of literal weapons of mass destruction that that's when he founded the Nobel Prize. He said, I want to shift my narrative, my trajectory to create something else, right? Like I want the thing that is remembered about me not to be destruction, but to be something creative. Mm. And I'm always taken by that story of the sense of this is happening as the decision is getting made. And what might it look like? Like, is there a scenario in which we 
like is there a midlife check-in at some point right that like lets you sort of see like uh, you know maybe if I was writing my episode it would be like a pre-good place right where like there's a midlife check-in that says like okay here's the things that your obituary is going to say about you whereas here it's like this is sort of happening but there's no they can't do anything with it and so like I don't know I was just thinking about that this is a cool idea I think in in your if you were doing like a fan fiction of the good place there'd be like a mid like I just say like a midlife yeah right Right. there's one of my favorite movies is heaven can wait which Mm -hmm. I understand was the remake of an earlier movie where where a guy gets essentially taken he wasn't supposed to die in an accident but the the angel grabs him too soon and he essentially has to he has to actually a little bit reassess his uh, his kind of resume life versus his his eulogy life and he decides to when given the opportunity to go back and finish his life he partly because he sees the woman he wants to you know impress (laughs) but he chooses to kind of adopt a bit of a different dream and that's that's cool well in a way that they have had they've had that without having it just in terms of all the reboots they instead of having a yeah. conscious midlife right. check-in they have they have the subconscious thing which i guess they're going to build in and say that takes place over lifetimes as opposed to right. you know within a life but i love your version i think we definitely have to we have to, and have I to will say, call I maya did, rudolph and tell her that i will get the... right on that <laughs> Judge Jen, um, we need, this is the solution. <laughs> right, forget Ali McBeal, we are going to, I did read one commentary, right, that notes that this feels like it could be a great finale, the like, mm-hmm. funeral for everyone could have been the finale of the show, and instead it's actually midway through the season, so it is sort of like a, like, there's the sense of finality, and also the sense of like, oh, but there's still somewhere this can go, mm-hmm. and so... The other thing it's reminding me of kind of intertextually in the series is the episode in season three, which has, on the one hand, I think there's Doug Forsett and the bar fight with the demons. And, and back at the time, I was thinking Jason has this thing about the Jacksonville pool game where you make your own rules and, and assign your own points while the official you know computers are tabulating things. And here we have... Again, that's kind of juxtaposition where they talk very individually about what's been your impact on me while the judge is looking at, you know, some kind of aggregate on one scale right. your whole life, you know. Right. And, and the whole thing they've partly been saying is, you know, there's no tweaking of that exact tabulation system that's going to work. And the funeral, like this would be a much better, it'd be like, portfolio, in education would be like portfolio assessment, you know, bring me. Right. Bring me right. <laughs> you know, the other thing, and I, I sort of mentioned this a little earlier when we were just chatting before we started recording, right, that I think is interesting. And maybe it's a through line through the show a little bit, but I think very explicitly in this episode is, you know, I think there is this ongoing question around the show. And I actually think, I wonder if it's, an underlying question, like in our tradition around Shuva, like I think there's what to be said of like, is the work of self-improvement, is that like an end unto itself? Is there a space in which me becoming a better human is just like my number system, I have improved? Or is the self-improvement piece towards a larger goal of, you know, improving relationships, improving the world? Is it a sort of concentric circles model? I lead services on Friday mornings for our kindergarten and first graders, which is as cute as it mm. sounds. And our kindergartners all year, they get to, when they do, we call clay Kodesh, they get to like lead a part of the service and they lead the prayer for peace. And each of them like says, I can bring peace to the world by, and then they say something and they're kindergartners. So it's really cute. Like, mm. you know, I can bring peace to the world by sharing my toys with my sister. Or I can bring peace to the world by picking up a piece of garbage, right? Like, 
And one of the things that I try to say to them, especially often because parents are in the room also, is that like, I think peace seems like this giant concept that is so unnameable and unknowable and ineffable. And yet there are these sort of little concrete actions. So if I have a more peaceful dynamic with my sibling, I don't have any siblings, so I'm just using it as an example, does that ripple outwards? And so I, I... I'm curious about that in this matrix also while like, especially while their points are going up, is it just that they become, is it possible to become a better person in a vacuum? I guess. Mm, yeah. Right. Cause well, this Janet's, is all about uh, their relationship. Here's what you meant to me. Here's what I learned from you. So we haven't talked about the fact that, you know, bad Janet seems impressed by this mm-hmm. micro perspective, you know, right. very much this moving, doing a little chuva from where you are. Right. That is the Janets, you know, are having a moment because I think we have Janets saying to the judge, you know, who wants to get in the reset button. Right. I don't say no a lot. Did I pronounce <laughs> that right? Very good, like sort of feminist consciousness episode. Yeah. yeah. For Janet. And then <laughs> the whole system is royally effed. Humans <laughs> suck. I also use the pages to wipe my, my butt. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, the Jan- so I don't know whether, I mean, there's good Janet and whatever. There's our Janet, neutral Janet, bad Janet. Disco Janet. <laughs> Disco Janet. Oh, my God. Disco uh, Janet. Disco Janet. And uh, what does Disco Janet think about all this is the <laughs> question. <laughs> it's always the question. Right. So the Janets have all this knowledge about everything from like every different angle, a disco angle and a, and a bad angle. And yet they've all, they sort of, in a way they don't like, that's not like they decide that's not relevant to them, the kind of biggest picture the aggregating yeah. school. I also like, I'm trying to imagine what the teachers here in Los Angeles, well, the, actually it was the support workers at schools were just on strike. And so the teachers were in solidarity in, in our school system. And I'm actually sort of imagining it's like a Janet union. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> we're like, it's not necessarily that they all agree, but they're all in sort of together to say like, all right, like, you know, we're standing up on this one. Sister hug, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no, that's it. And it's, it is a really interesting juxtaposition that it's the Janets who put their, their finger on the scale here oh. at the moment, or at least they're just the disruptors of this whole thing. Wow. I'm chewing on that. Yeah. Okay. I have a question that you're usually the one who asks, but I'm going to ask you. And I realize like we've talked a lot about our sort of lived experience, but are there any texts? Like, does this bring anything to mind? I don't know if I have a great answer, by the way. I just was curious. Yeah. Maybe you did. Oh boy, you know, no, I was thinking about that, hoping since you chose this episode <laughs> to do that. You, I you know, but like I think you. this theme, I think the themes that we've been talking about, you know, overall, it's so interesting because this is a funeral without mourning, you know, it's without right. Shiva, they're all there. So it's such a different boy. It's, uh, they sort of, you know, as we were talking about, they kind of subvert the idea of funeral anyway. What did Jason say? I mean, we've died like, We've died so many times. We've probably had like 15 funerals. Right, right. <laughs> um, and by the I way, I think that it. leaves the watcher wondering, how, like, did they go from funeral one, right? Like their first real actual funeral to now, like, did the eulogies change along the way? Incremental change versus like, I like to imagine that from, you know, tagging the Red Lobster to here, <laughs> that's like a huge shift. But I think so much of this show, and I actually think Brent is like, in this episode, the example of that, but like so much of this show is actually about incremental change. You can't go from zero to 60. There are these little steps along the way. And they, like, I feel like Michael's whole point is they make a difference. 
And I will say and that Sean, I think, is like, no, 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 like a billion years is nothing. Let's just. So, you know, this is very oblique. I'm sorry. This is very obliquely like what I am working on in the Devar Torah, the talk I'm giving tomorrow at our services on a very different topic in, in <laughs> just this sense that there's this teshuva, this going back to some other place in their life where each of them was not the person they were. And they don't, they don't name that at all. They don't really say, you know, I used to be someone who valued private jets and now, you know, I value this friendship. Um, Tahani has the the humor to, after she heard that Moby spoke at her <laughs> funeral, no. she's not, doesn't want to doesn't want to hear it and, but that's so interesting too and jason takes it to the extreme of like going back to the place you were born so the and and i'm now because again i started the, the beginning of our whole podcast thinking about rambam and maimonides talking about teshuva means you go back to a place either for the purpose of revisiting what happened in that place right. and rethinking it or getting in a similar situation here they they don't do that explicitly. And they would be who they are if their only experiences were the neighborhood in Australia and the several places right. they went. But they, they, they name other places and they bring each other back to some other place, which I guess is a kind of teshuva too. Who, would you, who do you need to take back to some place where you, you know, would want right. to revisit, who you didn't have with you? And right. that might you know, either help you see how you've changed, which is maybe that's another thing about Shiva is being able to see like yourself in comparison to who you were in that place and time. Hmm. Right. And there's this part of me that's like, but Tahani probably still likes private jets. I mean, who wouldn't, I think. But, <laughs> so it's the like, both the change, but also just, again, to me, it's so relational, right? Hmm. It's, it's being able, you know, I think the thing that none of us really have is seeing ourselves the way other people see us mm. so here you get to bring these other people from different parts of your life to a place where maybe right. no none of them saw you or they saw right. you right way. and by the way like who is it is it i'm trying to remember if it's tahani who basically says about her like she was so mean she was so this she was so that and i've never felt more seen mm, yes right yeah yeah. It's interesting. I, I don't know if it's if it's my own midlife thing, but I, I do have these interests in sort of standing in some of the spaces where I was before, not because I wanna go back again. My my I have a daughter in high school right now and we, we talk about that. I do I I don't have a great desire to do that again. But yeah. but I'm a little intrigued to sort of walk the the halls, you know, maybe with my wife, you know, once and right. definitely college. Now my other daughter is in school, you know, several blocks from where I went to rabbinical school in New York. And I, it's interesting to me. I was in Jerusalem a few months ago and hadn't been in my neighborhood there for 30 years and brought actually my journal from that year in college. And I read it over a little bit. I didn't journal that much, but there were a handful of things. And I made myself have a little conversation with myself about who, who I might have been, what happened to the, the person who was writing those things in the journal and anticipating and, and sort of affirming that um, some of the ways in which I fulfilled that and some of the ways in which I chose to not be that version, but to be this version. And, and, and doing it right there actually felt kind of nice. So now I'm, boy, I'm really loving this episode. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I also was just in Jerusalem and I think there are certain places that are so, you know, I go back to New York a lot and I actually don't have the same sense of sort of walking the streets that I used to walk, maybe because I still have an ongoing relationship with the place. Mm -hmm. I mean, though, I guess I do with Jerusalem also, but that place feels so steeped in the 
who was there with me, right? All of those things. I was also thinking about the fact I now teach at my seminary. And so like mm. I walk in and it's this funny moment. Like I wonder if Eleanor too sort of sees herself at the bar, like as she was, as opposed to as she is now, which is like, I walk in and I think like, oh, I'm a student and I'm a kid. And, and then it's all of a sudden, like I'm the one at the front of the room. You're like, oh, wait, yeah. when did that happen? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I also, th- thinking about text, there's like one I I can't quite figure out how I think it fits in. I was thinking about Jacob, one of the patriarchs of of the people of Israel, actually the one for whom we are named, on his deathbed. And he brought all of his sons, we don't know about his daughter, but all of his sons are around Mm. him. And he gives this sort of, I always think it's like a bit of a strange ethical will, that it is this very honest, right? Like it is very sharp in the sense of, says to each of his sons, here are your strengths. Here's the beauty in you and where it's going to take you in life. And also like, here are your thorns. And like, this is what's going to hold you back. And, um, and again, I think this is a different dynamic because it's, it's more eulogy than ethical will, you know, but thinking about that space for also like, I think about it sometimes, you know, in, in funerals and our traditions around eulogies and thinking around, like when you have people who were really complicated, who weren't the universal, like you were just an amazing friend and the best mom and the this and the that, like, what is the space for the, the, you know, camp we said, you know, you would say like roses and thorns. So I'm just thinking about that a little bit of like, and maybe some of the placement is that like, if you put Tahani in the Gulf stream, you're still remembering like she was a little bit of a dilettante and, you know, rich and shallow, even though we know she is not only those things, but like the reminder, like, okay, Tahani, here are all, here's the beauty. Here are the things that you gave us and taught us. And also there's this other path that you walked also. And so there maybe again, in the sense of like, they're still growing to do like each of them sometimes, you know, is it a crossroads? Right. Mm. Is it picking one and the other or the other or is it sort of integrating and saying like, OK, I know my thorns and I know my roses and together I'm going to be this flower in the world. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. I for some reason I'm thinking of this quote from Wayne's World where Wayne says, Mike Myers, was it Kierkegaard or Dick Van Patten who said to label <laughs> me is to negate me? <laughs> <laughs> and so I like that this is the nice kind of naming where you get to sort of accentuate without saying like, this is the sum total of who you right. are. And this, right. and that's why it's lovely that this happens sort of in the middle of what's going on with them. And I guess why you should say these things while people are alive. It doesn't, right. <laughs> it doesn't replace the story that came before. It's just a thing, a thing you have to say right now. And it doesn't mean you've had, you have to say every single thing at one time. That was very profound. Oh, well. Yeah. We'll say during the pandemic, I didn't, I wasn't great about it, but I got into a habit of like sending friends cards every once in a while. And I actually would like to get back in the habit of like, just, mm. you know, we have this tradition of Hakarat Hatov, you know, acknowledging the good, right? Mm. Like calling mm. out. So I started doing that with friends of just like notes of appreciation of like what they meant or mean. I shouldn't say meant. It's not in my life. I don't know. Maybe there are models of this that are a little less. I think it was morbid, though. So that's not the right word. Less funereal. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. And that's lovely, since you're the second person who's talked to me about that same thing today mm-hmm. i need to that must be a message that i have to you should start, start doing, doing that and it's yeah. interesting because you know i always talk about how i don't think the good place really is at all about you know fundamentally about death 
and no, not at all. But 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 here they're definitely you know capturing something real about yeah. that moment, even though it, they're sort of simulating it. And uh, yeah, it's important to borrow these things too. You know, it's, it makes me think about how I don't know whether this is true. Sometimes I think the more I know, maybe about either what's gone on before a death or what might how many people might be around in town for a shiva. It, it settles me down a little bit in terms of, do I feel like I have to do the perfect funeral? Because I know that the words said there won't be the only things mm. said. They'll be accentuated because of the microphone and whatever. But right. when I know that there'll be lots of stories still to be told, and some people who don't feel like getting up by the microphone will, you know, will That's tell stories in, yeah. the, in the circle, you know, that. Because, you know, I think it's, I always, and I don't know if you feel this too, you know, feel like, like the number one thing at a funeral is I don't want to let anybody down either uh, give the impression that i don't care or just or just or miss the mark like i'm always afraid that like i favored one perspective and that's actually not how people experience the person yeah you know i always say to people like to me it feels like the most sacred task being gifted with someone's life to hold in a lot of ways and and you know not to bring it back to hamilton but everything goes back to hamilton and <laughs> you know my son's favorite song in the show is who lives who dies who tells your story right oh, he's yeah. very he's mature beyond his years my nine-year-old that idea that like it is and i think it you know we're coming up on passover right as we're recording this yesterday was the beginning of the month of nissan the month of passover passover is the ultimate like sacred storytelling and so I think this idea of being privileged and tasked to tell someone's story feels really weighty. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's really interesting too is is the difference between what friends say and families say in their eulogies. Yeah. The good place, the episode funerals are all, you know, eulogies by friends. Yes, and right, like I think Janet talking to Jason has a little bit of that. And I also think like mm. Eleanor's weird, you know, Yosemite Sam situation like <laughs> yeah, yeah. to like I you see that often right a spouse saying like I can't do like mm. how do you sum up right and I say that to families all the time like I'm gonna ask you a bunch of questions and you're not gonna be able to sum up someone's life in a three-minute eulogy and I sort of say like that's actually why you have different people right is because the totality of a person is in all of these different spaces mm. Yeah, and in the episode, it's a wonderful counterpoint to these little shorthands we have about one characteristic of each person or one leading characteristic, and it's right. so neat to diversify that. And I think I was listening to Michael Schur being interviewed probably for the finale episode on the the NBC podcast and talking about how to make sure not to be repetitive in these last few episodes and not just kind of take it the same victory lap or the same thing to say about each character, right. but to either either say something different or just show in, in some cases in the, the plot something different that's still to be revealed that's a twist and, and something new on what we've seen before, even though even though this looks like the playing out of sort of the final judgment and in the aftermath, it's still, right, it turns exactly. out that right. they have a story, their stories are continuing too, they're not done developing these four, these four in particular, well, actually any human now, but we get to see how these several get to keep developing right. even after they've kind of settled on the new system coming yeah. up. I also just will say, and I realize I actually also recognize we've really only talked about half the episode, right? The other yeah. half. I also, there's a an article I read a million years ago about a chef. I can't even remember who it was. It's probably now a famous chef. I don't know that it was at the time. Who he is a white man who studied with Dame Edna Lewis, who was like the the godmother of Southern cuisine. A black woman and actually ended up living with her for the last years of 
her and like being her caretaker. And it's, I've used it in a million Yiska sermons. Now I can't because now it's in a podcast, but not a million, but I've used it before because <laughs> I think it's really profound. And again, thinking about the people who are left on earth and also thinking about, I'm, you know, skipping ahead to the, the finale, but he talks about this idea. Like he talks about life after death, not as like this metaphysical concept, but he's like, yeah, like my relationship with her didn't end when she died. Like mm. I still in my head and my heart, like I still ask her questions and it actually has changed and grown because I've changed and grown. And I think about that a lot, right? I think about the ways our, our loved ones sort of legacies and gifts like reside in us. And I also think about the way that like they change, like our relationships change because we change. And that's true of people who are like physically on this earth. And I also think that's true about like people we love and miss. Mm. And if I could find the article, I will send it because it is a beautiful article. I mean, the yeah, article is mostly about food. It was in like Bon Appetit, but that section I loved. That's beautiful. I think there's a quote in Larry Kushner in one of his books where he talks about the only thing we can change is the past because, you know, the hmm. future is un uncertain or, you know, is partly changeable. The present is happening, but the past is the one thing we can look back on and, and reflect on and adjust our point of view and what we learn. That's interesting. That, yeah. I'm not sure I agree. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure I agree that that's changing the past, right? I actually would argue that yes. that's actually what changes the future, right? It's like the way we look back and grow from the past. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that I was I was thinking about as you were talking, it's not directly connected, but I guess sort of in terms of this later in life relationship, is that these are characters who met each other late in their existence, or at least not at the not not through any of their earthly existence and you know so sort of late in their development and i i think about the value of those relationships and i think that you know there's a there's a kind of sense in the popular culture or popular literature about friendship is that you, know, you have childhood friends teen friends college friends whatever young adult friends and at some point sort of it's harder and harder to make new friends and and one of the great things I would say about synagogue communities is the chance to encounter new people at whatever age you walk in the door, including right. people of all ages. But I was thinking about this too. I, I we had a funeral for our one of our members who was in her late nineties, and and I've been here for fifteen years, so I, I did have my stories. And I was thinking about wow, like I was well, part I was of her life for only you know only starting at when she turned eighty four right. or eighty five, and yet there was such this rich connection you know that was there and there may right. be people yet out there who i haven't met yet in my life who will turn out to be yeah. key to who i become and maybe my my eleanor my michael my <laughs> whoever is still are still out there too more people of those to meet and help me in my chiva anything else you want to do no just to tell you that just yesterday i was at the good place i was at the set <gasps> again i went on the universal studios tour again how many times have you gone? Well, we have, so they have an annual pass for Southern California residents that is very affordable. And so my kids had the day off from school for parent-teacher conferences. So we went to Universal. Uh, do day. you have a picture? Are you going to share any photographs? I sent you the last time I was there. I'll see. I didn't take any yesterday because I'd already sent, but I can send it back to you. Oh, we got to make sure to share that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. This yeah. may be, this what we should do if we had infinite time right, funds we can a, take every host every oh, host of this podcast everyone can come, can meet come there. i can drive everyone i have a big car <laughs> you have a big van <laughs> well i have a big car Actually, i don't know how many ghosts it is maybe i, I don't know there have been 15 or more oh no they can't all fit in my car half of them can. <laughs>
All right. Great to talk to you, Sarah. You too. Chodesh Tov. Happy month of Nisan. Chodesh Tov. Azizan Pesach. Azizan Pesach. That was my dad's favorite. Sweet Passover to everybody. And and we will do this again before the podcast is over. uh, Yeah, that's true. And then the finale. And that's all for this episode of Tove. Thank you for listening. Make sure you're subscribed and recommend us by giving us a good rating or shouting us out on social media or to someone you know who loves The Good Place. Our website is tovegoodplace.com, where you can find brief explanations of Jewish ideas we mention and links to much more. Be in touch with ideas or questions to tove at tovegoodplace.com or connect by social media at tovegoodplace. Sari Laufer is on Twitter, at Rabbi Laufer. And I'm John Spirisavet, at RabbiJS3, on Twitter and Instagram, and with some longer material at RabbiJohn.net. Thanks once again for making the time in your day for us and for Tove. Now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.